Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Bible Reading Plan Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This podcast follows along with our church-wide reading plan, which walks you through the entire New Testament and gives you an overview of the Old Testament. Join us as we dive into God's life-changing Word together. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. This is Luke, and unfortunately, once again, I'm by myself, so no Pastor Ryan again this week, but we'll get him back soon. I promise we'll both be back together here in the near future. But in the meantime, I want to keep going with our reading plan. Last week, we talked a little bit about the book of Ephesians. We started to give some background on it and introduce it a little bit. But what I want to do is is get a little bit more into some of the details. But just to recap, remember we talked about the city of Ephesus. It was this large port city in Asia Minor, so think modern-day Turkey. It was a very strategic location. There were a lot of different trade routes that intersected here, both on the water and on land as well. And it had a pretty big influence on the surrounding areas, too. So it was a very strategic location. And remember, Paul visited Ephesus during his third missionary journey, and he was there for a long time. He was there for about three years, which in Paul's terms is a very long time. He usually wasn't in one place very long. So for him to be there for three years was pretty significant. And the book of Acts tells us that Paul would go into the lecture hall daily and he he would speak every day. And what he would do is he would train up different disciples from within Ephesus and then he would send them out into the surrounding regions. And his ministry was so fruitful, so successful, that the book of Acts says that everybody in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Everybody heard the gospel. But we know that Paul also had some pretty dark times in Ephesus as well. He talks about his struggles in Asia, in Ephesus, in 2 Corinthians. Remember, he opens this letter, the letter of 2 Corinthians, by saying that he despised of life itself and felt like he was sentenced to death. So he went through some pretty tough times, some pretty dark times in Ephesus. It was possible that he was actually imprisoned in Ephesus, but regardless of what exactly he went through, we know he went through some tough times, and he likely faced some spiritual opposition as well. And we know he writes the book of Ephesians from prison. Most would say that he wrote it while he was imprisoned in Rome. A few might say that he was imprisoned in Ephesus at the time, but regardless, we know he was in prison, and this was likely a circular letter that was meant to be passed around to various churches. You'll notice that it's kind of a less uh, personal letter. He doesn't have as many personal greetings and such, which is strange considering he was there for such a long time. So that's why we think it was more of a, a circular letter, something that would have been passed around to to various churches. And remember we said the first three chapters are more theological, they're more getting into to doctrines, and then chapters four through six are sort of the more practical chapters. So those chapters four through six, that's what I want to focus on today. There's so much packed into this entire book, there's so much packed into these chapters, but I, I just want to highlight a couple of points. Now, the first passage I want to highlight is in chapter four, it's verses 11 and 12. And just to give you some context here, in chapter four, Paul is discussing unity in the church. Okay, He's saying we're all part of one body, the body of Christ. But then he, he moves on to talking about diversity within unity. 
He says, yes, we're all part of one body, but we all have different roles within that body. So he talks, he starts talking about spiritual gifts here. And he says this in, in starting in, in verse 11. It says, and he, meaning Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So he's saying that God has gifted some in the church to be leaders, to be the pastors, the shepherds, the teachers. Why? Well, this verse has been the source of quite a bit of controversy over the years. And I think a big part of the reason why is if you look in the King James Version at this verse, and keep in mind, the King James Version was really the primary English translation for several hundred years, really from the 1600s into the 1900s. Many people still use it today, and I'm not trying to knock the King James Version at all. Okay, it's, it's a great translation, but understand no translation is perfect, contrary to what some people might say. All translations have their imperfections, and I think this verse is, is one case where the King James Version maybe has some, some imperfections. So in the King James Version, this verse reads that Christ gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? For the perfecting of the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. So with this reading, it's saying that leaders in the church have three roles, perfecting the saints, comma, the work of ministry, comma, and edifying the body of Christ. But there's a problem with this interpretation. It seems to be saying that a select few quote-unquote professionals do all of the work of ministry while everybody else kind of watches. Everybody else sits idly by. And this is what we call the holy man myth. Okay, we've talked about this a little bit before. It's this idea that pastors have this special connection with God that nobody else can have and only they can do the work of ministry. But the Greek text in this verse actually supports a different structure, and you'll see that modern translations will follow this. And they'll say that Christ gave some to be apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and so on. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's saying that the saints are the ones who do the ministry. So the leaders equip the saints, but then the saints are the ones who go out and actually do ministry in their everyday lives, in their schools, in their workplaces, etc. So if you think of the church like a football team, the church leaders, the pastors, the teachers, the elders, they're like coaches. Okay, Maybe the senior pastor is the head coach. And then the elders and the other staff people, they're like offensive and defensive coordinators, special team coaches, whatever you want to call them. The role of the coaches is to prepare the players to succeed. But the players, the saints, they're the ones actually on the field playing the game. So the church leaders, in the words of Ephesians 4.13, help people grow into maturity but all the saints have a role to play in ministry. We all have a role to play. So understand, this verse is really telling us, Paul is telling us that Christianity, it's not a spectator sport. Okay, we all have a role. We're a team. There are a few people, yes, who are called to coach and lead in a specific way. But most people play the game. The ones in the game, on the field, they're the most important. Okay, so understand, we all have a role to play. Don't fall victim to the holy man myth. 
Now, Paul gets a lot more into what the Christian life should look like here in chapters 4 through 6, and there's there's a lot we could talk about and get into. But I want to address just a couple other things. One is Paul mentions slavery in chapter 6. He says, Slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. And I think as you read this and as many people read this, we often struggle with the thought, is Paul condoning slavery here? Well, the short answer is no, okay? But to explain it a little bit more, understand Paul never offers any theological justification or foundation for slavery. If you look just before this, and at the end of chapter 5, Paul gives a justification for marriage, and he talks about how marriage is a, a picture, a symbol of the gospel. But he gives nothing like that for slavery, no justification at all. Instead, what Paul does is he provides instruction from a biblical worldview as to how both slaves and masters should behave in, in a way that honors God. So understand Paul's MO wasn't to overthrow governments or institutions. He was trying to help people glorify God within the context that they lived. And unfortunately, slavery, slavery was kind of a given in the Roman Empire. Okay, so he's not directly addressing whether or not it should be abolished. But I think it's clear where Paul would have stood if that question were brought to him. If he were addressing the question of whether slavery should be abolished, he gives us hints as to what he would say. If we look in 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul tells slaves, if you have the opportunity to become free, by all means, take it. Go, be free. And going back to Ephesians 6 in verse 9, he says, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way, meaning the same way as I just told the slaves to act, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So Paul tells these masters that you're not off the hook here. Okay, There is no favoritism with God. Paul tells us repeatedly, there's no more Jew or Greek or slave or free. We're all one in Christ. We're all accountable to the same God, and we're all just sinners saved by grace. We're all on equal footing. So again, remember, Paul's not directly addressing the question of whether slavery should be abolished here. He's simply working within the context of pre-existing cultural realities. Okay, now it's pretty clear where he would stand if we were to directly ask him whether slavery should be abolished. But since he's assuming that these cultural realities aren't going to change anytime soon, he's saying, Masters, you need to act with love in a, and in a way that's pleasing to God, just like everyone else. And slaves act in a way that's pleasing to Christ. Everybody, regardless of background or race or social status, should act in a way that is glorifying to God. Okay, so he's operating within a cultural context, but he makes it clear that all people are equal in God's eyes, regardless of, of race or social status or background. Everybody is on the same footing. So just wanted to, to clarify that. And we'll talk more about this issue with slavery, especially as we get into the book of Philemon. Now, another thing I want to mention here in chapter 6 is the armor of God. This is in chapter 6 from verses 10 to about 20. So Paul starts talking about spiritual warfare here. Now, remember, Paul went through some pretty difficult times in Ephesus. And remember, Ephesus was a, a dark place. It was known for idol worship 
and for magic and for the dark arts. And Paul likely faced some pretty heavy spiritual opposition when he was there. He sort of stirred up a a hornet's nest, so to speak. And so Paul starts talking about how believers are to be spiritually equipped to withstand the assault of the enemy. And he says in verse 11 that we should do this so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, one thing to notice here in this passage, believers are never told to win the victory. Why? Because Christ has already won it. Satan and evil have no claim on believers in Christ. Christ has already won the battle. But there's still a sense in which we need to be proactive and take up the armor that God has given us, that he's provided us. Now, as Paul talks about this, he uses a lot of imagery from the Old Testament here, especially from the book of Isaiah. But readers of this letter would have recognized this description of the different pieces of the armor as a Roman soldier getting ready for battle. So first he talks about the belt of truth. And just a note here as to where Paul gets this imagery from, if you look at Isaiah 11.5, it's talking about the, the coming Messiah. And it says, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Okay, so that's where Paul really gets this imagery. But also, Roman soldiers with their armor, there was a couple different things he could be talking about here. They wore a leather apron beneath their armor, or he could be talking about the metal belt that protected their lower abdomen. Then he goes on, he talks about the breastplate of righteousness. And again, in Isaiah, if you look at Isaiah 59, 17, it's talking about God himself. It says, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. So again, that's where he kind of gets this imagery from. And for Roman soldiers, their breastplate protected the chest. Okay, it was a piece of leather overlaid with metal. Now, what's interesting is that it only protected the front side of the body because the soldiers stood side by side and there was no retreat. So it was only their front side that needed to be protected. We'll come back to this in a minute. That's that's an important thing to note. Then Paul talks about how we should have feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel. And Roman soldiers, of course, had to wear sandals or boots so they could advance toward the enemy undistracted by what they might step on. You know, if you're charging into battle, the last thing you want to be worrying about is what you might be stepping on on the battlefield. Then Paul talks about the shield of faith, having the shield of faith to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Well, Roman soldiers carried rectangular shields. They were about four feet high, and the front was made of leather. And what they would do is if they knew they were going into a battle that might involve flaming arrows, they would actually wet the shields before battle. They would make the leather part wet to help quench any flaming arrows that might come toward them. And then what they would do is they would stand together in close ranks. They would be close together, and the front row would hold their shields forward in front of them, and then the rows behind them would hold their shields above them. So in that formation, they were virtually unstoppable against flaming arrows, or they were virtually unpenetrable, maybe we should say, that there was really no way for the arrows to get into the Roman ranks. So these shields were very effective against flaming arrows. Then Paul talks about the helmet of salvation. And again, this is a reference back to Isaiah 59, 17. Roman soldiers were equipped with helmets that had cheek pieces to, of course, protect the head and the face. And then finally, Paul mentions the double-edged sword. This is the only weapon 
mentioned. And one thing to note here is that these double-edged swords were something soldiers only used in, in very close combat. So this these would have been used on the front lines of battle. So just to kind of bring everything full circle here, just to give a summary, one thing we should learn from this passage is that, first of all, spiritual warfare is real. Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And remember, Paul is speaking from experience here. He faced spiritual opposition in Ephesus and really everywhere he went. So keep in mind, the spiritual realm is just as real as the physical realm. Okay, so we're familiar with the physical world, the physical realm, and it seems very real to us. Well, just as real as the physical world is to us, the spiritual realm is just as real. So remember that the the enemy is actively plotting and, and scheming against us, especially when we're actively advancing the kingdom. So one thing we should ask is, if we're never really experiencing any spiritual attacks, What does that mean? Well, it might mean that we're not actively on the front lines. We're not actively advancing the kingdom. So remember, spiritual warfare is very real, especially when we're actively trying to spread the gospel. But also remember that God has given us everything that we need to stand strong. Notice that in verse 10 of this chapter, at the start of this whole section, Paul starts with, Stand strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And notice he says, This is the armor of God. It's not about our strength or about what we bring to the table. It's about using the strength that God has already provided for us. And another thing to keep in mind here is that we're stronger in numbers. So going back to what I said earlier, remember I said there's no armor for the back? The breastplate only protected the front side because the Roman soldiers would stand side by side and there was no retreat. So this is the same for us. We're stronger when we stand side by side together in close ranks. We need each other. Being alone as a Christian means that we're vulnerable to attacks. We need community. We need each other. And also remember, prayer and the word are key here. Our only weapon in this armor of God is the word of God. So we need to cling to God's word. We need to hide it in our hearts. And we should also go on the offensive here. This isn't just about defense. We should be on offense. We we should be spreading the word because the word of God will not be stopped. By the power of God, the gospel cannot be chained. And remember I said the double-edged sword is only used in close combat? So Paul is saying he expects us to be on the front lines of battle. So the word is critical and prayer is also critical. Paul ends this section with, pray in the Spirit on all occasions. And I would encourage you to maybe even get into the habit of praying through this section of Scripture, of praying through Ephesians 6, and just making it a daily habit to put on the armor of God, so to speak. So you can pray, Father, today I put on your belt of truth. I cling to your truth alone. I put on the breastplate of righteousness, understanding that my righteousness doesn't come from myself, but through Christ alone. And so on and so forth. I encourage you to to pray through this section of scripture. So again, remember, spiritual warfare is real. But we're on the winning side. As Pastor Hines often says, we don't fight for the victory. We fight from the victory. But there is a sense in which we need to be proactive in using what God has given us against the schemes of the enemy. We need to cling to God's truth. 
We need to cling to his righteousness. We need to cling to his word. We need to be praying. So we need to be proactive, but remember it's only through God's strength that we will stand strong till the end. Well, that's all for now. I know we started reading Colossians this week, but we'll give more of a background on Colossians and also Philemon and Philippians next week. So make sure you tune in for that as we help you get into the word until it gets into you and as we equip you so that you can go out and you can be a world changer.